In March of 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 took off from Kuala Lumpur shortly after midnight. The takeoff was completely normal, and roughly 40 minutes into the flight, the plane is just about to leave Malaysian airspace. So the air traffic controllers tell the pilots that they're about to be passed off to Ho Chi Minh City, to which the pilots simply reply, Good night, Malaysia 370. There's no alarm, there's no fear in their voices. But then, just 90 seconds later, the plane goes dark, vanishing completely from air traffic controllers' radar screen. What happened next is still a baffling mystery. While the plane appeared to have crashed or exploded, the Malaysian military's radar technology was able to locate and to continue to track the flight. And their technology showed that for some reason, the pilots or someone else had made the plane go dark. And then it turned a hard left. Flight MH370, now far off of its charted course, continued to fly westward for nearly six more hours before finally crashing into the southern Indian Ocean, killing all 239 people on board. When news first broke that the plane had vanished, the international community quickly launched an extensive search and rescue operation. That search would last more than three years and cover more than two million square miles. But that search would basically turn up nothing. Even now, nine years later, only small fragments of the plane have ever been located, and they were washed up as ocean debris on the east coast of Africa. As MH Flight 370 and the Jim Thompson case illustrate, Malaysia is home to some of the world's most baffling unsolved mysteries. And well into the 21st century, new evidence keeps emerging that makes at least the Jim Thompson case get weirder and weirder. From 13 Media, I'm Tricia Jenkins, and this is Worldwide, The Disappearance of the Thai Silk King. Until Flight 370, the search for Jim Thompson was the largest search and rescue operation ever carried out in Southeast Asian history. And today, it's still probably the largest land search that's ever been carried out in the region. William Warren, a close friend of Jim's, wrote a book called Jim Thompson, The Unsolved Mystery. And in that book, he essentially lays out the four most frequently given reasons for Jim's disappearance and probable death. And throughout the episode today, I want you to consider how likely you think that theory number four might be. As Warren points out, each of these theories has the exact same disadvantage. And that's that they are all unsupported by even the smallest shred of evidence. So, what are the theories? Well, the first is that Jim was kidnapped for ransom by one of the gangs known to operate in Malaysia. The second is that he committed suicide for a variety of personal reasons, 
and did so in such a way that his body couldn't be found. The third is that he was kidnapped or that he voluntarily went off with someone to achieve a covert political purpose. And the fourth theory, the one that I want us to track today, is that he simply had some sort of accident in the jungle and that his remains are still there today. I want to focus on theory number four because a lot of people believe that given the extraordinary man hours that were devoted to the Jim Thompson search, and at least when compared to Malaysia Flight 370, the amount of terrain to be examined was much smaller, that something should have turned up by now. A button, a body, a bone, and yet nothing, even to this day, has ever been located. To help us better analyze theory number four, I wanted to see if I could find somebody who was an expert in search and rescue operations and knew something about the Thompson case. And I found my unicorn. His name is Dr. Lou Tumlin. He earned his PhD in public policy analysis from the American University in Washington, D.C., and he has spent decades helping governments with emergency management and communication. Lou was also once recruited by the CIA, but instead went to work for Booz Allen Hamilton and later spent stints with the Office of Foreign Disaster, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, and the Defense Communications Agency. Just like me, Lou fell down the Jim Thompson rabbit hole, And in 2013, he headed to the Cameron Highlands himself to interview as many surviving witnesses that were involved in the search and rescue operation as he could. But before we get into that trip, I wanted Lou to tell me how he discovered the Thompson case in the first place. And for that, you have to go back over 60 years. Lou says that he first heard of Thompson. Sometime in 1959, maybe the early 60s, because I was living in Thailand with my parents. Of course, he was famous already then. And my mother was actually a client of his and bought some of his Thai silk. I don't think I ever went to his house at that time, but I certainly heard about him. He's probably the most famous American in Thai history and one of the most famous Americans in Southeast Asian history. We left Thailand in 1965 to come back to the States. And he disappeared, of course, just two years after that. I mean, we heard about the disappearance, and it always stuck in my mind that that was fascinating and bizarre and strange and needed to be investigated. And so I sort of put it, you know, in the back of my mind as a bucket list item. And many, many years later, was able to follow up and actually research the case. Lou was also fascinated by Jim Thompson because of his work as a spy in the OSS and the glamour that seemed to surround Thompson's life. Part of him being so amazing is that he basically knew everybody and he even met even more people because he created his tie, uh, what's now the Jim Thompson house there, which is six different houses all linked together, stuffed with Asian art. And he entertained there almost every night, sometimes little small dinner parties of two to four people, sometimes up to 150 people, literally almost every night for two decades. So everybody who was anybody at the time, movie stars, world leaders, politicians would come to his house and would socialize. And of course, you know, that's what CIA is all about is meeting people, getting to know them. And over time, 
becoming friends and then recruiting them. None of this usually happens in five minutes, except if you're recruiting a taxi driver and bribing them. But, you know, it's more months and even years of cultivating people. And so what better place to cultivate someone than in a beautiful house museum with great food and wonderful art? So Lou gets intrigued. But because of his professional background, the element that piques his interest the most is how the search and rescue operation for Jim was actually carried out. And so in 2013, he packed his bags, starting by visiting the town of Tanarata to understand the terrain that the searchers were dealing with. Tanarata is the town that's in the middle of the Cameron Highlands. And at the time, it was very small. It had a little commercial strip that was only about 100 yards long. And there were a few cottages, like the Moonlight Bungalow, that usually British officers used that were up on hills overlooking the town. But really, the place is very tiny. The terrain was mainly conical hills. And the Moonlight Bungalow is a kind of an odd Victorian red and white brick entity with three bedrooms, and it's on top of one of these conical hills. To get from Tanarata up to the Moonlight Bungalow, it takes about 20 or 30 minutes of going up a very winding road. It gets cold at night, so it gets down into the 40s at night, so you can die of exposure up there as possible, usually in the 70s during the day. And the jungle is single canopy, and that's bad because what you want, ideally, is more of a Brazilian jungle, which is triple canopy. In a triple canopy jungle, there's very little light that gets down to the ground, so there's very little undergrowth. So you can have searchers that are spread out like 50 or even you know 100 yards apart, and they can see each other, and they can see what they're doing. But in single canopy, a lot of the light gets to the ground, and you have very dense undergrowth that grows up. There's only one photograph of the search in operation, and that shows about six guys only a couple of yards apart going through a very thick undergrowthy area in a clearing, and the undergrowth is up to their waist. So if Jim Thompson was right at their feet, if they didn't trip over him, they might not see him. In fact, Lou says that the thick jungle combined with the winding roads and hills is what makes this area so dangerous to hikers. Jim Thompson is not the only person to be lost in those hills by any means. There are probably a dozen or more hikers who've just vanished in that over the years. Some of them since Jim Thompson disappeared because they go out. Some of them get lost within 20 minutes. I mean, I actually met a couple who had been lost and who staggered out onto the road in front of my car when I was there. And within 20 minutes of going into the jungle, they were lost. And they staggered around for about the three hours and then finally, luckily, came out onto the road that I was on. So it's very difficult. Lou says that according to the original police reports that were taken, none of Jim's friends really started to get alarmed that he hadn't returned to the Moonlight Bungalow until about 4 p.m. But because Jim was known for taking long walks, they didn't think too much about it. When 6.30, 7 o'clock rolled around and Jim had missed their cocktail hour, and it was growing so dark that it would have been impossible to make out objects in the distance, his friends did what is called in search and rescue terminology, a hasty search. That is, you know, if you went missing, your friends, I'm sure, would, you know, start running around looking for you. And that's exactly what they did. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing as long as they don't destroy clues and as long as they are efficient and don't get lost themselves or hurt themselves, which sometimes happens. 
When Jim's friends failed to find him, they then called in the local police, who, to their credit, showed up quickly and helped with the search until about 2 a.m. When nothing turned up, though, word started spreading fast. The next day, they brought in more police. The army was called, and they showed up. And Jim was famous enough that this quickly evolved into the biggest search in Malaysian and probably Southeast Asian history on land. So by the end of the second day, there were dozens or scores of people searching. By the third day, they started to recruit what's called the Malay Police Field Force. So these were people experienced in the field, police officers who were specialized in this kind of thing. Somewhat later, a general, a U.S. general who was a friend of his, flew down. And every day it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And the search went on for 11 days. I would estimate that the total search person days that were delivered was around 1,448. That's a huge effort that was put in, a very impressive effort and quite massive. According to CIA officials, about 500 people eventually joined the search, ranging from army police to native trackers to just school children who lived in the area. The scale and scope of the search, and the fact that no evidence of Jim's remains have ever been found, led some of Jim's closest friends to reject the idea that he just disappeared in the jungle. And they weren't being naive for embodying that skepticism. Because here's what not everybody knows about Jim. He'd actually done extensive wilderness survival training when he was in the OSS. So he would have had two episodes of training, one before he parachuted into France and and then did behind-the-lines thing in the Balkans, which would have been more of a standard special forces training on weapons, but, but also survival, not so much jungle survival. Then later, when he was going to be dropped into Thailand, he did a jungle survival course in Kandy in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. And that would have taught him quite a bit about jungle survival. And over the years, he had done things like jumped into jeeps and just driven up into the jungle in northern Thailand looking for caves and art and things like that. So I would say he was still a current with with jungle training and survival. Okay, so Jim's got some survival skills that the average tourist to the area would likely lack. But Jim, you have to remember, is 61 years old in 1967, and he's not in what we might call peak physical condition. He probably was, you know, maybe 20, 25 pounds overweight, but not huge. Probably 175 pounds when in the war he had been 155 pounds. He was 61 years old. He had amoebic dysentery, a infection or bacterial or amoebic, I guess an amoeba in your, in your gut. And it was being treated for that. So if you get an attack of that when you're walking through the jungle, you'll feel very, very weak and you might not be able to walk nearly as far and of course you'd be stuck there for a while. He also had gallbladder issues that about every six months seemed to give him an attack and he was given pills for his gallbladder problems but he did not take those pills with him on his hike and they were found back at the Moonlight Bungalow. He told someone once that when he had a gallbladder attack in London it was almost like he was dying. It just felt so horrible and it was so painful. So it would really incapacitate him if that happened in the jungle, for at least a few hours. I mean, he might be able to get up and try and walk out again, but it would be very bad. 
So when Lou visited Tanarata, he was able to locate Captain Makda Mohammed, the search leader who had been a lieutenant back in 1967 and was involved in the case of Jim Thompson. Lou talked to him about the search strategy and tactics, which inspired Lou to keep digging into the case to see if he could figure out what the most likely cause of Jim's disappearance and probable death might be. He went through all of the media reports, noting each of the possible theories that the journalist had laid out to explain Jim's disappearance. So I come up with about 25 different causes that were mentioned by the press or in interviews or other sources. And I was able to get rid of about 11 of them. And some of those are just absolutely no possibility at all. Some of them that are silly are, you know, he fell into quicksand and was swallowed by quicksand. Well, there is no quicksand in the Cameron Highlands, so that's ridiculous. And yet it was mentioned as a possible cause. He fell into a cave. Well, there are no caves in the Cameron Highlands, so that ain't going to happen. Then there are other things that are very, very low probability. He was killed by the Orang Asli, the native aborigines who live in the area. They're very, very peaceful, very unlikely to kill somebody. And actually, the searchers in 1967 brought in an anthropologist and intelligence officer named Richard Noon, who did interviews with a lot of the Orang Asli. And it's pretty clear that nothing came out then and nothing has ever come out ever since about the Orang Asli. You know, every journalist always has got to mention the eaten by a tiger. Well... Again, possible, and I always try to say, you know, I'm trying to be a scientist here. That is possible. There are tigers in the area. They've been spotted. There is a type of tiger called the Malayan tiger species. But each tiger requires about 100 square kilometers of area to roam in. That's their territory. So that's an area 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers, 6 miles by 6 miles. That's a lot. And they're usually very shy. And in the entire last century, there have been no documented attacks by tigers, much less deaths by tigers. So possible, but I'd say the chances are just so remote that I figured I could throw that out. So what does Lou think might have happened to Jim? I do try to think of everything probabilistically. So modern search and rescue is all about mathematics and thinking in probabilities, not not getting locked into one scenario. So my most probable is that Jim Thompson, as was his wont, went for a hike in the jungle, which he had done the day before, and just tripped over a root and, you know, hit hit his head or fell down a ravine or something like that. Had an accident of some kind, maybe had a gallbladder attack or maybe a dysentery attack, and was incapacitated, died of exposure, and then the search was not adequate to find his remains or his body. And I did quite a massive evaluation of his of the search. And in terms of him going for a hike in the jungle, he, as I might have mentioned before, I think he went for such a hike the day before and got lost and actually enjoyed it. And I've never come across a search victim before who enjoyed being lost. But he actually seemed to revel in that. Whereas his host, who was with him, Dr. Ling, was pretty annoyed and actually strained a ligament and was a bit upset by that whole three-hour episode on the Saturday. But if Lou is right, if Jim loved that thrill of getting lost in the jungle the day before and decided to take one more hike, this time alone, why hasn't anyone ever found his body, or even just some bones, a year, five years, even 20 years later? That's an excellent question. So my search analysis basically had four elements. 
where it was searched, what quantity was delivered, what quality was there, and what's my conclusion. In terms of where it was searched, if you take the Moonlight Bungalow and you go out three miles and you draw a circle around the Moonlight Bungalow, Captain Muhammad said that they searched that circle, but only five-eighths of that circle, north and west of the Moonlight Bungalow. They didn't search the other portion because that's where the town was, and they figured if he was in town, he would have been found or identified. So that's where it was searched. The quantity delivered, I roughly estimate 1,400 person days, which is massive, but using the modern National Search and Rescue Association formula, I would calculate that the probability of success of that search was probably only in the range of 30 to 40% using their method. And using another method, which was one of the search leaders at the time said that he really needed a regiment of men searching for a month to find Jim Thompson in that tough jungle area. Well, that comes out to more than 45,000 days of searching, and they only delivered about 1,400 days. So that's only about 2.9 or 3% of the search that was necessary. So you put it all together, and I just don't think that the search was adequate to find his remains. If there are remains, they are likely spread over one to four square miles around the place of death. And that's typical because predators, small predators will take small bones at a short distance and large predators will take bones and remains one to two miles distant. And that's just typical. I think the search was probably the best that they could mount at the time, but looking back on it using modern search and rescue analyses, there were many issues with the search. The National Association for Search and Rescue says there are nine classic errors that are often committed in searching. And I think about eight of them were committed <laughs> during, during the search. Lou says that these errors included a lack of clear leadership and control over the search. So one of the nine or so major search problems that occurred in the search was that the search managers really lost control of the search. This would never happen in a professional modern search. But the search managers allowed to be brought in local mystics, and they were running up and down the trails setting off fireworks because that was supposed to scare off the evil spirits who had kidnapped Jim Thompson. So this is just nutballs. I mean, you know, you just can't, cannot imagine such a thing happening in a modern search and rescue operation. But it happened in Malaysia in 1967. Okay, so the search and rescue was good for 1967, but it left a lot of area unsearched. So maybe that's just it, right? Maybe the simplest answer is the right one. Jim Thompson went into the woods for one last hike before he had to meet his friends for cocktails and fly out the next morning. It's simple. It's feasible. It might even be probable. But there are two things that continue to bother me about this solution. One is that Jim's friends all described him as a chain smoker. But he left both his jacket and his cigarettes back in the bedroom of the Moonlight Bungalow. Now, I have a lot of vices, but smoking has never been one of them. So I asked my friend Jeremy, who used to be a smoker, what he thought of this detail in the case. So I started smoking as a teenager and smoked into my mid-30s. 
I took my cigarettes or my tobacco when I rolled my own everywhere. One of the reasons why I decided to quit was turning the family around. We were about 20 minutes away from the house, but making everybody go back so we could get my tobacco. So yeah, it, it gets a hold on you. And, uh, and I was never considered a chain smoker in any way. Um, I never was the guy that lit a cigarette with the previous cigarettes. But even when I'd be out and about traveling, hiking, whatever, I would always have it with me. It was kind of a ritual to anytime there was a beautiful view, a wonderful place that I liked, a new place to take in, I would sit and take it in with a cigarette or two every time. So Jeremy has a hard time believing that a heavy smoker like Jim would have ever left the house to take a walk for any good amount of time without having his cigarettes in tow. And the second thing that still bothers me, Lou says that when he interviewed Captain Mohammed and looked at formal police reports, he made a discovery that was not reported by the media. And that's that bloodhounds had been used during the original search. And those bloodhounds never picked up a scent past the property lines, suggesting that Jim Thompson may have never actually gone on a hike at all. Nobody else had ever discovered that there was any real organized use of dogs in this search. And that's unfortunate because search dogs, if properly trained, can be fantastic tools for searching. And there's really two types of dogs. There's the bloodhound type dogs that follow a scent trail, and then there's air scenting dogs that cover a large area and try to find any clues or bodies or bones or anything out there in a, in a field or in the jungle. The three dogs that were used in this search were bloodhound type dogs, and they followed a scent trail from the Moonlight Bungalow out to the road, the access road, which was just, you know, maybe 20 yards away. And then that scent trail sort of petered out. So the Malaysian police thought, okay, that means that the scent trail is broken and that the subject, Tim Thompson, must have gotten into a car or truck at that point and been driven away. And there would not have been any scent remaining from that because has to, you have to be walking on the ground. If you remember, this is basically what Peter Herkos claimed happened to Jim Thompson. That he had met a friend, walked down to the road with them, and then was shoved into the back of a vehicle by armed men. But no one ever heard a car coming up the road or the slamming of car doors. And that fact makes it easier to dismiss the idea that Jim had died or at least vanished at the hands of some nefarious players. But then, in the 2010s, another wrench got thrown into the mix. And that wrench is a film made by a former CIA officer named Barry Broman who produced one of the only pieces of new potential evidence in the Jim Thompson case. How can someone so famous disappear so completely? I have been looking for the answer to this question for years. And I think I finally found it. Yes, I know who killed Jim Thompson. Before we get to that episode, though, I wanted to thank Lou Tumlin for taking the time to speak with us today. If you'd like to learn more about Lou's research and analysis of the search and rescue operation, Lou typed up everything in a 600-page report that's now available in this episode's show notes. 